Welcome to the Third Turn Podcast, a resource for the experienced executive facing into future value, succession, and legacy. Today's guest, Steve Woodworth, is CEO of Masterworks, a leading marketing agency serving Christian organizations, and he is a passionate and articulate voice on the importance of finishing well. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Third Turn Podcast. I actually have three welcomes today to your listeners, first and foremost, and also uh, to today's co-host with me, Linda Milanowski-Westorp, who was a guest for episode 57 of the podcast and has now migrated to the co-host chair for today. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you as well. And you're not only serving as co-host to the podcast today and intermittently in the future, you'll be intermingling with Mark and me in upcoming episodes, um, but you're also joining Mark and me as facilitators of our Maestro Level Leader Cohort Groups as we serve that growing group of leaders and cohorts. So we're really excited to have you join that initiative as well. Great. And I'm excited to share that in addition to the three cohorts that we have going to date, uh, we're in the process of assembling a fourth cohort kicking off in this new year. Yes, we are. It's just so gratifying, isn't it? I mean, what what are we now, two years in? And we've had three cohorts kick off and a fourth in our third year. And just to see the engagement and the commitment of leaders growing to this is just really gratifying. So glad to have you as a part of that, Linda. And my third welcome, Linda, is to Steve Woodworth, who is CEO of Masterworks for the last 30 years and has had an even longer career serving Christian organizations, helping them grow. Steve, I am just delighted about having you here today and the message on your mind and heart that you'll bring to our listeners. Thank you, Kristen. I'm delighted to be here. Um, ever since I met you and Mark at uh, Christian Leadership Alliance um, earlier last year, I've been listening to the podcast and have really enjoyed it. There's very little content like this out there, so it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. As we listened, you listened to us at the um, CEO Forum there at, at the CLA conference last spring. And we had a chance to listen to you as you shared, again, from both your head and your heart. It was very striking that this is something you've studied and been a student of, leadership transition and finishing well, um, and also very much from your heart. You seem to have a passion about this. And I really look forward to our listeners being able to benefit from that today. I've, I've seen so many transitions in leadership in my career. We serve mostly Christian organizations. I've seen so many go so poorly that it's been a passion of mine to try to understand as I face my own succession I'm in the middle of right now, um, why have so many gone so badly? And the ones that have gone well, why is that? And so I've, um, I really have been getting more and more passionate about it as I've studied that here in the last couple of years. Great. Well, I was wondering if you could share with us and our listeners some context about Masterworks and where you and your organization find yourselves today. Well, we are a mostly marketing agency. We do some other things related to technology and experience design and things like that. But primarily, we help Christian organizations grow. And we've been at this for over 30 years. I've been personally involved for 30 years. Uh, as of December. And we're um, growing, not as fast as I'd like. I 
think I got spoiled from my years at World Vision where we grew double digit percentages every year. And most of my years here at Masterworks, we've grown by double digit percentages. That hasn't been the case in the last few years, but uh, our mission really is to help accelerate the missions of our clients. So whether that's helping homeless people, we have many of the largest homeless missions in the country as clients, helping prisoners through organizations like Prison Fellowship, helping um, spread the, the gospel of Jesus through ministries that are evangelistic and helping people grow in their faith through, through ministries like the Navigators, who that's their specialty. We are uh, really blessed to be able to bring our faith to work and, and be, have a job that where, where we can impact uh, the world in a positive way every day with what we do at work. Well, that work all brings a large smile to my face. That's beautiful. I love the contribution you have to our world there. If you were to now think of your experience in a more personal context, Tell us about your own three turns of leadership. So turn one, as you guys describe it, is learning to lead yourself. And I think I've, I've listened to podcasts enough that I think I probably am saying what you guys say in terms of how to learn to lead yourself. I think it's about finding your own gifts and what are my strengths and weaknesses? What gives me energy? What de-energizes me? And then learning to adapt your own aspirations and ambition and your own work toward those things that you're gifted to, to do. So that, that, that's the first turn as I see it. And that was a first, that was a, a couple of years probably before I began to realize what I really wanted to do. And I was in a staff role doing analytics at World Vision and I was getting very bored and came to understand it's because I really wanted some hands-on responsibility, not just making recommendations, even though I was having an impact. So the, this, the turn two, learning to lead others, that for me, I think the, the, the biggest thing that happened to me was I began to realize it's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about being the smartest person on your team. It's about others. And it's about having vision for your area of responsibility and knowing why that is important and what to do next and how to get it done and then marshalling a team to get it done. And, and I think probably the biggest revelation for me ever was to think of leadership as the stewardship of others' gifts and time. So people want to go home at night and feel good about themselves. And as as a leader, if you're harsh, if you're demanding, if you're never satisfied, people go home feeling bad about themselves. And so once I began to look at it as leadership and stewardship over people, it just totally changed my paradigm. And, and it really rocketed my career, I think, because good people want to work for you. Good people stay when you treat them like that. And they get a lot done and they accomplish a lot when you're marshalling their gifts to the maximum impact as, as the leader. Turn three is what I'm going through right now is realizing over the last few years that just because I've done a lot, I've helped a lot of organizations, it, that, that's not going to matter much in 20 years. Nobody's going to remember who I am 25 years from now. I don't even know the names of my great-grandparents or <laughs> I knew I know my names of my grandparents, but it's going to be about what I left. And, and with Massworks being over 30 years old, 
I have every expectation that it will be here 30 years from now. What will I have left behind? And especially with us having this missional focus, will it still have that? And will it still be impactful in accelerating organizations of, that are faith-based toward their mission, accomplishing their mission more effectively? That's the kinds of things that I'm thinking about right now. What a wonderful experience and um, shift in your perspective from that second to third turn in particular, and uh, really resonated with the stewardship of people. We need more leaders like that. Throughout your career, through your own leadership lessons, and you mentioned along the way, seeing where it didn't go well, how has finishing well risen to the top for you in recent years? Well, there's a professor of leadership at Fuller, now retired by the name of Bobby Clinton. He did research and and focused on this subject for the latter part of his career. And he concluded that roughly two thirds of all leaders do not finish well. And so that is very sobering when you think about it. He also looked at the Bible and figured that of all the kings and and people in the Bible, two-thirds of them didn't, didn't finish well. So in, in the midst of my own succession, I realized I've, I've seen enough sad situations where people have even blown up their legacy, uh, some organizations that have, that have gone out of business because the, the transition was handled so poorly. Some leaders who've turned against their organization that they spent their life building uh, because of offenses, and I can get into that more in, in a bit if you'd like, in terms of what I, why I think those things happen, but it has just made me um, passionate about this subject that that the, the principles of how to do it well and why it goes wrong, making those as clear as possible can be quite a good contribution. That's why I love this podcast, it's what you guys are are trying to do in the in the cohorts that you that you have as well. It will certainly be great to have your knowledge and experience continue to inform and help to transform from two thirds of not going well to hopefully a much better number. We're going to take just a brief break, and we'll be right back after that short break. Today we're talking with Steve Woodworth, CEO of Masterworks. Steve, last spring and today chatting, shared about the abysmal realities around leaders not finishing well. And I know you've been a student of that, and it's really prompted you to dig in, study, and learn. Tell us more about what you've been learning as you've become a student of this yourself. Well, Kristen, nobody wants to end badly. Obviously, nobody sets out with that. I think that the single biggest thing is, is that, I've, that I've seen is just a lack of communication. This is a very touchy subject. It's a, it's a difficult thing to walk through. There's assumptions made that people don't really want to clarify because it's awkward. So to tell you one quick story, my pastor asked me if I would chair a succession committee of our, the board at our church. And I said, yes. I said, but will you allow me to talk to the board without you in the room? To begin with, because I have a theory here that in many cases, one of the reasons why succession goes badly is, especially in organizations that have boards, is leaders reach a certain age and they think, I need to get serious about succession. And somebody 
either they mention it to somebody on the board or if somebody on the board says something about it and suddenly the leader feels like they want me to get really serious about it and they want me to have a plan and they want me out of here. They don't clarify, is that really the case? They don't clarify what kind of timeline we're on or anything like that. My pastor at that time was 64 maybe and running marathons and at the peak of his career in terms of a great pastor, great impact on the community, big Christian school network here in our community and all that, you know. And so I, I went to the board meeting and I said, does anybody here want Tom to retire? Raise your hand. And nobody raised their hand. And I said, do you guys realize that Tom thinks you want him to have a specific plan for when to retire, how to go about it, who's going to succeed him? And they all looked around like, not me, not me. And I said, nobody wants Tom to get really serious about retirement? No. And I called, called Tom back in and said, Tom, nobody here wants you to retire. He was shocked. And this, so that was the only succession committee meeting that we had. And that was three years ago. And Tom's going strong and doing better than ever. And that is that that's just an illustration of what happens where people think that because I'm approaching my mid 60s, I've got to move on. And any slight hint that they tend to pick up, they start to run with that and feel like they want they want me out of here. And that does not feel good as a leader especially if you're healthy and you're effective at this point in your career. I think there's an artificial construct because of social security that 65 mm. is a milestone year. That's just simply a, an American construct. I mean, mm. all over the world, I've worked all over the world and that is not there where you don't have a social security system with a 65 year old retirement age. And even when social security was set up, the average lifespan was less than 65. So it's it's mm -hmm. just really fascinating how much that influences our culture. It's also a very much American thing that the ideal life is to retire and go into leisure. Yeah. And I've seen people do that and hardly anybody that does that is happy. Almost everybody that does that, including my predecessor at our company who founded it went into a retirement in a with a plan for leisure for the rest of his life. And within a year was back asking me if we could hand him a small client or two to help do some consulting and help them grow because he was missing that. He was good at it. And um, so that communication thing, the artificial construct of, of, of the age at which you should retire, you know, it's almost embarrassing for a lot of leaders because of their mental construct that I'm approaching 65 and I don't have a plan yet. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do succession planning. I think succession planning is very different than find your successor and get out of here. I think succession planning ideally is an overlap with your leader who's going who's gonna to follow after you and working together and building friendship and building a common value system so that you can inculcate your values as a leader into the successor. You know, I think about um, even the high profile companies that have had bad uh, leadership transitions. Think of Apple, for example, just fell apart after Steve Jobs left. Mm -hmm. They had to get him to come back. Mm -hmm. And then on his second tour with Apple, they were very successful at him working alongside Tim Cook who was an inside selection. They worked together for years. 
And then it was pretty seamless when Steve Jobs left or actually passed away, sadly, that Tim Cook already shared the value system, understood the DNA of Apple, and today they're the most valuable company in the world. So that's happening. I mean, you can think even just in recent news of Starbucks founder had to come back. You know, other companies, leaders have had to come back because they didn't pass along the core missional focus, the core values, the core strategies that made the company successful. Mm -hmm. So that that's another key principle that I feel is that a really good succession should have a, a significant overlap, maybe even many years of overlap together. And in that also, then you become friends with your successor. That's what I'm dealing with right now. My successor was identified in my mind, a couple of years ago, formally, the entire senior team signed off on him being the successor to me, but with a plan to get him ready and with a commitment from the whole senior team to help him fill in the gaps that he still needs. And with an understanding between us that I don't really ever want to go away until I'm not adding any value anymore. I don't want to be in his way but I want to continue to be a part of the company and continue to contribute to the community of Christian organizations as long as I'm able. And he is really committed to that as well. So one other principle that I, that I use, I call open-handed management. I think of myself as having all of my responsibilities in my hands open out for everybody to see. And I say, if there's anything you think you can take off my plate, go for it. A year ago, there were several strategic partnerships that came to the forefront in our business at the same time. They were all based on friendships that I had with other Christian leaders. And my successor, Brian, said, I think I can handle those partnerships. I think I can help set those strategic partnerships up. And I thought, I don't think so, because I think these are very much based on my personal high trust relationship with these people but go ahead and try. And he was successful in every single one of them, three of them simultaneously that all worked out successfully. And now guess what? He's got that part of what I used to think only I could do. And he, and we have this kind of open dialogue where he will say, I think I can do this for you. And I'll say, go for it. And then he also comes to me for coaching when he runs into trouble with it. So um, I think that's, that's another key principle. It's not, there, there's so much emphasis on find your successor and then get out of their way. That's another very common construct, which I think is not very good because that there's so many times where that next person doesn't have the values of the organization, doesn't understand the secret sauce of what made the organization successful. And then they fail or they just flounder and it's not necessary. It, it, it didn't have to be that way if, if the succession was done in a way like I'm describing where you, you have time. I had, a, I had a previous succession that didn't work out and I thought I had the successor and, and he wasn't the right person and he would be the first to agree with that. And he has had a really good career doing something else instead. Well, Steve, there are so many things you just touched on that we could we should, could spend time on. But be before we move ahead, I d I'm struck by the fact that your heritage and the work that you've done through Masterworks is communications and clarification for your clients, right? And then here you are 
finding yourself in the midst of transitions at your church, your own, realizing that communication, this gift of yours and your organizations is so critical in this murky place called transition. So anyway, just the fact that you bring that, uh, your giftedness now to this topic as well is, is really striking to me. And I do, and I'm really glad you talked about, you know, you've learned from, you know, kind of succession gone, not the way you planned. And now working on succession, it sounds like in, as you described, a very open-handed kind of way, in a way that sounds to me requires openness, communication, and, and humility. And I want to ask you more about that. But before we do that, Mark and I and Linda talk about this season of transition as being very much about like peering into the mist. It's very murky. You hope it goes a certain way, but you're not really sure. You you think you know what the next step is, but I'll be darned that you know didn't work or whatever. So given that, like this peering into the mist murkiness and all the studying you've done to become better equipped at this, yeah, talk about that. Do you feel like all the studying you've done has given you kind of, yeah, things are less murky, less misty, you got a plan or what's, or is there a del- delicate balance there that you see? Yeah, we brought in an outside person to help us a little bit in this. When I was trying to bring the consensus among my senior team around my successor to discover, would would this person be supported by everybody? And one person opted out and decided to do something different. And that person for a long time would have been considered a candidate. So that was clarifying. And the other thing that the consultant really emphasized to us is being open about timelines. And I I was resistant to that. I felt like I'll know when he's ready and everyone else will know when he's ready. And this guy said, it's almost always, if you don't set at least like a range, like six to 18 months or something like that, almost always the person that you've chosen, if they're the right person, they're going to be deferential to you. And they're going to feel like, I don't want to do anything that's going to make Steve feel like I'm pushing him out of the way. And you're going to tend to feel like, well, he's not quite ready. He just needs this and this and this. But if you set a timeline, then everybody's focused on making it happen. And it it creates clarity for everybody else on the team that this isn't going to be two years, five years, totally open-ended. We're really going to do this. And so that was very helpful. It's murky in the sense of, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, but Brian knows very clearly that I want to be here five years from now and still making a contribution. Might be working part-time, certainly won't be working the 55 hours a week that I averaged up until a few years ago or the 50 hours that I've been averaging the last few years. That much is clear. So there's a There's an understanding between us of what my goals are, what I want, and there's an acceptance on the part of my successor. I think that the the biggest fear and one thing that causes these things to go badly, and my story is not done being written, so this could still happen, but the biggest fear on the part of the older person is that you'll be a dinosaur and nobody wants to be a dinosaur. So I've always been passionate about learning. I'm still... I'm learning about digital marketing. I'm meeting with our digital team to understand how complex it is to measure the success of digital marketing. It's not like the kinds of media that I grew up using. 
where it was very measurable. So I'm continuing to try to stay knowledgeable about what we're doing and how we do it and why we do it that way. And that uh, hopefully will keep me relevant. I've got lots of industry-wide contacts, lots of opportunities to serve on a couple boards and things like that. I believe I'll be able to continue to add value doing those sorts of things for for a long time, but I don't know exactly what it looks like. So you have to learn to live with that ambiguity. But Brian's very open with me about, I don't want you to have that fear. I, I want you to feel wanted and needed, and I don't envision a day where I would ever say, I don't want you here anymore. And I think that's actually part of, that's one of the qualifications of a good successor is that they don't want to push out the senior person. I've seen so many times that either there's arrogance on the part of the senior person, and I've been talking about that for a while, about how I've tried to fight that. The, the arrogance of the senior person is the junior person's not ready. Maybe they'll never be ready. I'm always going to be needed. You know, this place would fall apart without me. You got to get rid of that. On the, on the part of the junior person, it's very common to feel like I don't need that person anymore. I don't need that, that, that leader. I've got this. And they don't realize how much value that person brings in terms of wisdom and counsel and network. And in, in, in Christian organizations specifically, usually the, the outgoing CEO has really good relationships with a lot of major donors, with foundations with other organizational leaders that are in the same space. And there's a lot of value in that. When they get pushed out, that all goes away. And I've watched, I've watched income tank, you know, from Christian organizations when the new leader pushes the old one out and a lot of donors will just go away then because they're partly loyal and trusting in that senior leader and the junior leader doesn't even realize that they're losing that value when they, when they push them out. Yeah, you speak very um, articulately, Steve, to the the delicate balance, the both and, you know, knowing who your successor is, but also having space for yourself and um, the murkiness as well as the planfulness. I mean, that's really a core belief that we share that it isn't all murky, it doesn't have to all be murky and it can't all be super planful and tied up. It's, it is a delicate balance. So um, admire that and how I hear you walking yours out. When you and I talked in a recent conversation, you mentioned something really kind of poignant and um, vulnerable and honest about the phobic fears that can arise in someone in your position as you are working with a successor. And it actually sounds like working, you know, very intentionally, communicating well, and still phobic fears can arise. Would you just tell us a little bit about your awareness of that experience with that? Well, the number one phobic fear is what I just mentioned, being a dinosaur. Mm. And I felt compelled to, to share that with Brian at one point, just to be totally honest, that if you give off signals that people around here aren't working hard enough, I'm immediately going to take that as you're thinking, you're trying to say that to me. And so by clarifying what your fears are with the successor that you're working with, they can be careful to not step on those buttons, you know, that are... You got sore toes, I guess I would say, and they can be careful not to step on your toes um, in ways that are going to hurt you and you'll take it wrongly. Yeah, the, 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 the phobic fear, I think, is that they won't need me and there won't be anything for me left to do and I won't have anything else. If somebody has 
a plan to, to do something different that is meaningful in their lives, whether that's a volunteer thing or like you guys have come in to do this maestro level leadership, that's fine. And I think then it's fine for a person to transition out. But if you're part of an organization that you love and you've built over a long period of time and you want to continue to be a part of it, then, then your phobic fear is they're not going to need me. I suppose your phobic fear when you start something like maestro level leadership is that it'll flop and now I don't know what I'll do if, if it doesn't go anywhere. Um, so it, it is really just the idea of being irrelevant and being done in life when you feel like you still have a lot left to contribute. So I think no matter what you're going to do or what your plans are, if you're wanting to transition in that third turn, you've got to have a plan that you're going to not just focused on giving, you know, get, getting out of what you're doing and what you've been doing. So many people I've seen sell a company and think that I'm set for life and there's, I don't have to work anymore. And like, that's another part of the American dream. But those people end up very unhappy because they're, they, they have to have something to go to. I have several friends who've gone through that and have never felt like they really found that thing that they really find satisfaction in after they leave the big job that they had where they built a company or built a ministry. So um, that's really the only phobic fear I think that exists, or at least it's, it's by far the dominant one. Well, again, as I just threw out our conversation, Steve, you know, the themes of communicate and clarify really rise to the top in what you share, especially in this very delicate place of transition and that you find yourself and the way you're leading it. So really appreciate that. As we, we always um, wrap up with some turning point questions, I'll hand it back to Linda for that. But is there anything before we do that, Steve, that's just on your heart, on your mind, you just want to say before we kind of move ahead to the next part of our conversation? Just where I started that I so appreciate what you're doing. It's it's so badly needed. And encourage you to just keep uh, keep doing what you're doing and get this uh, build build more and more content there's very little content out there mm, thank you great well Steve that was really uh, a lovely um, conversation that the two of you just had and it was exciting I had the same couple words that came to my attention which was the communicate and the clarify even right from your beginning of the board example uh, and the assumptions that the two walked away so differently. So thank you for that. Well, it sure sounds like you have an opportunity to continue what you love, even if in different ways than you've been doing it. If you could pursue any other interest or role going forward in life, what would it be? Well, I'm actually intending to write a book on this subject. So that's something I'm excited about. It's my number one goal for this year. And I had thought early in my life, early in my career, that I would like to be a writer. But um, I think it would have been boring to me to just do that. I, I, I did try a year. Uh, I did a stint as a consultant for a sizable consulting organization, management consulting. And I, I so missed the sense of responsibility for results and the leading of a team and those kind of things. I I went home every day with no action items. The client had all the action items. And I don't think there's anything I would rather do than what I'm doing. And it's part of why I am passionate about trying to continue and find my niche 
each year as I go along where I can add the most value. For sure. And I would imagine the extra years of experience and things that you've noticed and learned will inform that book beautifully. As you recapped through your three turns of leadership and reflected on your journey, describe one lesson, a leadership lesson that you wished you had learned earlier in your career. I think it's that thing I said earlier about that it's not about me, it's about the team. And that good leaders look at their people as a group that they want to steward their time and talents, as opposed to having to be the smartest person in the room. I, I, for years, thought I had to be the smartest person in the room and thought that's how I would get promoted. And I didn't even understand then that I was alienating my colleagues and people don't want to work for somebody that thinks they're the smartest person in the room. And... Even if you are the smartest person in the room, apply your intelligence to bringing out the best in everybody else. And even people like the person that I was competing with for the next level leadership in my first major uh, career at World Vision, I decided at a critical point, I'm going to help him because there are things that I can do a lot better than him. That, and I began to help him with those things. That person today, 35 years later, has been working with me for 23 years at Masterworks. And we are really close. We've, we've worked together in different places for 40 years. And I'm sure it's because I went from, it's about me and it's about me showing how smart I am to, no, it's about empowering everybody and helping everybody to be the best they can be for the sake of the mission of World Vision, which was helping hungry children. So it's a sad thing that I was so focused on myself for a few years there. Wished I'd learned that right away. Well, and as you say that, just that shift in leadership, how many more people can be positively impacted by the results of the organization and the efforts of the team than the one. So thank you for sharing that. What is a current book that you're reading and why did you choose to read it? I'm reading uh, Stephen Ambrose's biography of Eisenhower. And I'm reading that because I read David McCullough's book on Truman. I, I heard somewhere that Truman had more difficult things to deal with in the first year of his presidency than any president ever. He had to take over World War II when FDR died. He had to make the decision on whether to drop the atomic bomb. He had to deal with the post-war uh, reconstruction of Europe and all these things. And on and on and on. So I, I thought, well, that's really interesting. I never thought of Truman as an interesting president, but that was a great biography. And I was struck in that biography of how Truman and, Truman and Eisenhower really disliked each other. And they won World War II together. And, and Eisenhower w w worked for Truman, right, as commander in chief. So um, I was fascinated then to go on and read the Eisenhower book. I'm right in the middle of that right now. And it's also a great book. Two people who couldn't be more different in their leadership and their their approach to everything, and yet both were great leaders. And so um, I find biographies to be particularly helpful, inspiring and informative. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom, your studied and personal experiential wisdom with our listeners. And we just, you know, yeah, continued blessings on the journey that's ahead for you and the places you're contributing in this important chapter of your life. So thank you. 
Thank you, Kristen. Thank you too, Linda. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you, Linda, as well. And we are gathering our next Maestro Level Leaders cohort, which is a four-year journey with others tackling these questions, these issues that Steve's been talking to us about um, with an eye towards future value, succession, and legacy. If you would like to know more or explore whether that might be a timely strategy for you, please visit maestroleveleaders.com. We'll respond and um, follow up and would love to have a conversation with you about that. This Third Turn podcast is a production of Design Group International. Mark L. Vincent got us started several years ago and launched these the first of these cohorts. I'm Kristen Evenson, a coach trained in the neuroscience of change and co-host these podcasts along with Linda Milanowski-Westorf. Jennifer Miller is our producer and Josh Brinkman, thankfully, engineers our sound. We welcome your subscription and sharing this podcast with others. Just know that we'll be back in a couple weeks with a fresh episode and we hope you'll join us then. This is for Grand Children's Grand Children.